0: Welcome to the Now Leading Podcast, hosted by the Northwest District LCMS. We bring a Lutheran point of view to conversations on the art of leading as a follower of Jesus, through valleys, over peaks, and on the waves, following his lead in the great Northwest. Hi there, this is Dust Kunkel. First Chronicles twelve thirty two of all places, has this great line about men who understood the times and they knew what to do. It sort of falls in the middle of this long section about David and his men and everything, but I think it really captures a picture of what we are up to these days. We we need men and women who understand the times and know what to do. And I think this podcast and the the accompanying podcast that follows it might be helpful for that. You know, I kind of picture two two kinds of people who might be listening to these two podcasts about the closure of Concordia University. Um, there might be that one group of folks that are connected in some way, either they've been alumni, they're students, they know faculty and staff, uh, they're connected in some way to the university in a very personal way. And and I hope that this is an encouragement to you in, in helping you understand the times and be wise and, and know what to do. And um, there are also folks that maybe are not as connected to the university. Maybe uh, you've just heard stories about it and they're not all good stories, but um, you've you're just wondering what's going on with this university as it closes. Well, I hope that it's an encouragement to you in some ways, this conversation that I had with Dr. Linda Brecki. Either way, the focus of these podcasts has always been to encourage and support leaders in doing their best work. So listen in, and I hope that this conversation in some way changes you and helps you grow. All right, this is Dust Kunkel with the Now Leading Podcast. And do I have a treat for you today? I am uh, I'm online with Dr. Linda Barecki. Hi, Linda. Hi. And uh we are <laughs>
1: I'm still thinking about the treat part. I'm not sure this is gonna be a treat, but there you go. <laughs> you set the agenda.
0: <laughs> we are trying to make this happen in the uh, age of COVID, and you're at your place, and I'm at my place, and we've got microphones set up, and so we're hoping that it, the sound comes through all right. I can hear you good. Um, and uh we're gonna get rolling with this. Um, Dr. Bareki has uh offered to have a conversation with me um about her time at Concordia and um, we share some really cool, uh, s- some past and some history at Concordia. Both of us have been students there and um, this is a week that's a tough week for us. The school is closing this week as we record this podcast. And uh, so in a moment, we'll I'll introduce you a little bit more to our folks, Linda, um, but let's start with this. Uh, I just want you to give us your best shot at answering this question because this is where we're going, you're an instructor what is it about teaching young adults that is so special?
1: I have to tell you this, it's it's been really hard and I would have answered that question differently two years ago during Mm. the horrible year. What I love about this generation is that they are Gen Zers by and large Mm. and that the millennials who are in there are now older and wiser and what I love is that I have such an affinity for the Gen Zers. These are survivors. They were survivors before Concordia closed. They were survivors before COVID hit. Yeah, They are marked mm. as being survivors. And they also share some of my um, uh, n- negative traits. <laughs> they, uh, they have a- anxiety. They have a fear mm. of scarcity. They have a lot of worry that they are trying to navigate in their life and i just know what that feels like to be anxious and so i feel a great affinity towards them for that
0: and and that's probably what helps you connect with them the most is is just what you shared is that you you connect with them emotionally um as survivors as people that are have faced a lot of challenge in their lives and are um are walking through it
1: yeah yeah they yeah. grew up in the 2007 2008 the great recession mm. so they've known anxiety and scarcity scarcity from their parents yeah. and that's gen x ers and don't you think would you agree with me that every generation the one that follows them we tend to be mystified by them mm. uh, before the boomers our parents they struggled trying to understand us baby boomers they thought we were whiners and self-indulgent
0: and <laughs> wait a second this- aren't you not about- <laughs> still the case <laughs> i I'm, I'm an Xer, so i can say that <laughs>
1: <laughs> but we thought that about the gen xers and the gen xers yeah. we think have a disconnect with the millennials so it's yeah. like it's now been a couple of generations so i i think that when it's two generations down there is not that invested mm. uh or Holding the next people just right after yeah. us to the same expectations as us. What do you think?
0: There's less, less judgment and more openness to just kind of receiving them for who they are. That's what I'm hearing from yeah. you. Yeah. So we're going to have a real cool conversation about a little of your history and the history of Concordia University, kind of intertwined, and, and maybe some of mine, too, because we're both students there. But before we get there, a couple of notes. One, you've got written approval from some, some of your students. Uh, so if you're quoting students in our podcast, you've got written approval from them to use excerpts from their papers that were written in a couple of your classes, right? True. So... Um, let me tell you a little bit about Linda now that we've kind of launched in here. So Linda is uh, was a member of the first baccalaureate cohort at Concordia University. So it was a two-year junior college, and you were the first group to graduate from the four year Is that right? Yes. You have taught um, in the area you've loved all along, which is worship in the arts. That's what you loved as a student, and you've instructed in that since that time. Um, I'm just looking at your CV here. It's just, uh, I love how you write this up. Failing to take a single practical, and that's italicized, single practical course as an undergraduate at Concordia College, Dr. Baraki studied instead English and sacred music and gave her senior organ recital on campus the day that Mount St. Helens erupted. Wow. What was that like? Yeah.
1: May 18th, 1980, I came out from my last rehearsal at 8.30 in the morning and the mountain had blown up, but it was all blowing north, so we did not realize what a big deal it was. And this was in the days before anything, so there was no news, Mm. there was radio, but there was no visual, and nowadays they show it on TV as though we saw it happen, but we didn't, we only saw the mountain blowing up, and people came to my recital And my dad drove down from Eastern Washington and attended my recital. And here's a a sad part of the story. He went back and worked at Hanford, and there was a big dust storm from Mm -hmm. St. Helens on that following Wednesday. And he was in a terrible car accident and survived but never worked again, had Mm -hmm. a lot of head injuries. So Mount St. Helens marked me in many ways. To go back to the happy upside, That organ is still in L300, and when I taught there, I would make my students come up to the balcony, and I would play A Mighty Fortress, and I would make them sing. (laughs) And I loved everything about worship and the arts at concordia to bring it full circle
0: very cool i i have memories of that organ being played as well and i'm sure many people who are listening to our conversation will have memories of that organ being played as well a little known detail and maybe you've uh, know about this as well but there's a little hatch that led onto the roof right up there from that balcony did you know about the hatch
1: I did, but I was not one of the ones who ever used that hatch.
0: Let's just say that a, a friend of mine, uh, someone I know really well, uh, has been through that hatch and onto the roof of Luther Hall a few times. So wow. no names will be I, – I can't share the name of this quote-unquote friend of mine, but there's an easy-access spot up there, and you can climb up onto the roof of Luther, at least back in the day in the early 90s, you could. Interesting. Interesting. So, um, Dr. Brecky, back to you, and, and not about this friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> your doctoral degree is in theology. Um, you have taught on campus, online, and at Lutheran institutions in India, Indonesia, Thailand, Cambodia, and most recently <sighs> at, at Concordia University in Portland. Um, your area of concentration is ethnodoxology. So, just say a little bit about that. What does that mean? Ethnodoxology.
1: I love to find out why people do what they do. Hmm. What are we doing that for is a question I have always asked. I want to know what people expect when they engage in liturgy, in worship. Do they expect to encounter God? And if so, how and Hmm. where? And by extension, what makes them lose that expectation of encountering God what makes them fall away from that or what makes them want to change and reform liturgy and how does our culture make a difference in how we see God or even pray to God in India the students finally asked me halfway through my time there Dr. Linda why do you always pray to Jesus hmm. I was flummoxed. it's like what we don't pray to Jesus what we pray to God, the father, we don't pray to Jesus. Why not? And so there's, that's just one example of cultural expectations. That's just one single example. And I've always been fascinated about how people expect to encounter God or not
0: in worship. And then you, then you most recently have been teaching at Concordia university where students pray to God, the father and to Jesus, and maybe to all kinds of other um, deities or don't pray right and and we're going to get there in a a little bit because actually this this whole podcast is about a conversation that you and i had a few weeks ago about concordia closing and about our heart for the history of the school and and really for the generations that um that are are at the school right now as it's closing and where they're going right and so and we'll get there um but but the conversation that you and i had um I love the metaphor. in the midst of it, we talked about tidal waves. You and I were were this metaphor mm-hmm. of a tidal wave and And kind of open that just explore that a little bit with me again. Um, what do you What did you mean when you said a tidal wave w- when we had that conversation?
1: There's a generation that has been at Concordia these past couple years since two thousand eighteen. I'd mm. say there was a big shift. And there was the the tidal wave that happened two years ago. So at least half of my students, if they were there as freshmen, would have remembered that tidal wave. And that was the whole LGBTQ plus uh, mm-hmm. controversy. And right. we can talk more about that later. Mm-hmm. But that, that was a tidal wave. That was horrible. A time of great tumult, unrest, it was hard for faculty. It was hard for staff. It was hard for students, hard Mm -hmm. for everybody. That was the first wave. Then we get through that one. Now, uh, the next tidal wave was the closure, February 11th. I know the date. And uh, that felt like an earthquake for many of my students. It was so hard. Most of my students this semester were sophomores. They mm. were not seniors. I'm teaching a 400 level class, but they are by and large sophomores. And so they were mostly going to all be looking for new schools. That was a tidal wave. And then finally, the, March 13th, which in my heart, I had a strong suspicion that we were not going to close down for a quarantine for one month and come back for a week yeah. and finals. I had a sense, this is it. This is the end, mm-hmm. and this is the last day. And so did they, because they were already packing to go yeah. home. They weren't going to stay on campus for a month in their dorm rooms waiting. Mm-hmm. They were they were going home. So multiple tidal waves. Yeah. Those were the three biggest ones. And they themselves, the Dust, you didn't read all their papers, but many of them have mm-hmm. huge things going on in their lives, personal tidal waves on top mm-hmm. of these collective tidal waves.
0: Of course they do. They're, they're people. They're young people in challenging times. Um, yeah, I, th- as you were talking about that, the image just came across my mind. I, I You know, we all have these images of that tidal wave that, that washed in in Japan um, not that long ago, really. And um, just watching the wave come and knowing that if you were in its way, there's not much you can do. There really isn't, right? Um, all you can do is maybe hold on and, and hope that you get cast somewhere without being taken down.
1: Yeah. Um, That's both uh, the downside, but it's an upside. Again, these are students who know that this world is broken. They weren't like us boomers who expected everything to go right because it was uptime, the eighties. These are students who have already come into a broken world and they believe that the adults have failed them, many of them, and they have a strong sense of pain. Yeah.
0: Well, there's a reason there are multiple reasons for doing this podcast and this time, this conversation with you. Um, One of them is connected to what we're just talking about in a quote from um, Eugene Peterson, uh, from one of my favorite books of his called Leap Over a Wall. And he talks about lament and how in our culture we so rarely make space for that, for lament, even though the, the Bible is filled with it. And he says this about it. Uh, loss is never merely private; it's social and political as well. Lament shapes the culture. The way we deal with loss enters into the atmosphere and makes us a people capable of nobility and beauty, or not. And I, I just think that's such a great sort of paradigm for why you and I are having this conversation, and and in the hopes that uh, maybe for you and I we'll get a little further down the road in this. Um, lament of losing an institution that's had such an impact on our lives and the lives of thousands, but also maybe providing an opportunity for other people to do the same, to be connected um, in one little way to the sadness that goes with it so that we can um, get some meaning out of it. And maybe I'm putting too much on that, but for me, being able to lament is important. And, and And I see what we're doing here in this conversation as being a little bit of that,
1: Yeah, I I would agree that um, suffering can contract or it can expand you. It can break your heart for good or it can break your heart and then it becomes a cold and stony heart. And I see these students rising. Hmm. And in this process that we had together, we started lamenting a month before the rest of the world for different reasons. But I believe that to lament is to hope. Hmm. And that when you can speak it and you get it out and you can name it and you lament, then it's no longer inside of you festering. Hmm. And so we practiced that. And I got to teach the Psalms. I didn't put that in your blur, but that was Hmm. one of my favorite things. And I got to teach it the first time with Hans Schepalteholtz, which I would love to tell you so many stories. But uh, it was from Hans that I learned we are going to spend a fair amount of time on the lament Mm Psalms, and everyone is going to write a lament. And I have learned That if you allow people to write laments, you go deeper and you are healed in the process of writing a lament.
0: Because we're being honest about who we are instead of just saying everything's just going fine. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's being present and aware of your whole body Mm -hmm. and how your whole physiological self is affected in suffering and trauma. Got to teach yeah. that too. Trauma and hope last okay. semester. Yes. It was a great preparation for the semester <laughs> and uh, it is necessary. It is absolutely you know, critical that we allow ourselves to lament.
0: to So breathe. let me take this maybe, and let's make this a little personal. I know you've got some things you can share from your students um, from their writings, but I, I want you to take us back to that, um, that year, maybe that day when you graduated from Concordia in, and just think out loud with me a little bit about who you were then and what's changed in in the person that you were then to the person you are now it's kind of a big question but i'm i'm curious a lot of changes happened
1: it is i would i would love to just jump into the stories yeah and then you tell me what you see okay because uh, so far we've been kind of uh, sober and yeah uh, yeah uh, yeah but the stories are what shaped me and they are kind of rooted in mm. both love laughter and ridiculous situations that
0: i remember and it's not always I, what changed me it's who changed me yeah
1: yeah. yeah yeah okay so can can i tell you my favorite story above all stories
0: let's hear it yeah
1: <laughs> so We were the first graduating class. We were 48 graduates and we were trailblazers. Hmm. There was something about us 48 students. We started out as 150 and by the time the four years was up, we were uh, strong personalities. (laughs) We were outspoken. We had strong wills. Um, May I say, may I name that (laughs) among my fellow graduates was Paul Lineman. And uh-huh. you probably don't know many of these other people, but Jeff Chronic, yeah, uh, here in the district, Mary Carlson, Val Kuyper, who served as a Lutheran educator his entire career, hmm. and Mike Madison, who worked in the foundation. Gene yeah, Visser, Janice Bickle, John Rose. We, we were strong people. Okay, Damn. so I was in class in Religions in American Life with one of my favorite professors, John Sheck. We raked all those guests over the coals. <laughs> we asked piercing questions. We had a Jewish guest. We had a the yeah. Adventist guest, a Mormon guest. They all came, and we didn't just ask polite questions. We asked questions, how can you possibly believe this, because we know that we're right and you're yeah, wrong. Yeah, yeah. And finally, one day, John Sheck was so exasperated with all of us. And we, we had been downright rude to the Jewish rabbi. Oh, mean, no, I because can see he his face,
0: too. Sheck's face. He,
1: face. he, he came <laughs> and he said, so, so when the Messiah comes, we're going to ask him whether this is his first visit or his second. And we just lit into him. If it's his second visit, you're lost. Don't you realize that? You can't. So we just lit into him. And here's John Sheck standing up there in his suit and tie. And he said... Remember, students, no one will ever get into heaven by submitting a correct theological treatise to God. That is an exact quote, Mm -hmm. and I remember it's so stuck in me because I grew up in the days of chick tracks. Do you even know what those are, Dust?
0: I have no idea. For a variety. Oh
1: my gosh! Go online. Just type in (laughs) chick tracks. These are little um, booklets, black and white cartoons. They were everywhere. They were in my house. They were in the churches Hmm. and they were meant to be evangelism tours tools but the one that i can remember every panel on was this was your life it was based on a tv show this is your life
0: oh yeah and this
1: one the man dies then you see him in the grave then you see him at the judgment throne and then you see his life and he even looks like a nasty guy when he's in a baby (laughs) cartoon (laughs) and at the end he doesn't have any excuse and he gets sent off in this shoot down to hell and what came across to me i don't know if it was explicitly taught or whether it was implicitly taught but i knew that we weren't saved by good works but i had substituted in my belief system that we are saved by right belief
0: hmm.
1: and this guy in the cartoon booklet says i don't believe in christ and i don't believe i need i'm a i am need a savior And so I was obsessed not only with knowing that Jesus is your savior, but I wanted all of the doctrinal truths. I wanted to know I was in the right institution, the right church. And here's Dr. Sheck. And his good nature came forward. Mm. And his advice, his quote, has stuck with me ever since because the implications are so deep. You're not going to get into heaven by submitting a correct theological treatise to God. And I think my entire rest of my life has been working out, okay, then what is going to get you to heaven? (laughs) Not just that, but if you are saved, then what are the implications of that? If I don't have to worry about knowing all the right doctrinal truths, then what?
0: And what do you think? So that was
1: started there.
0: Go ahead. I know Sheck, too, and he he taught me as well. Um, In fact, I was the group of students in the 90s that had that group of professors kind of for the last go-round before they began to retire and Chuck was among them, but I, he taught a number of my classes. So, um, I can see his face even now, but as you think about what he shared with you, what, uh, what's the subtext? In other words, um, from his perspective, if you could put words in his mouth, um, which, you know, sometimes we don't, we don't want to do that, but we're talking about an institution closing down and its heritage, um, it's life, it's core, um, What do you think Dr. John Sheck would say?
1: I actually know that because I've interviewed him. And Mm -hmm. if we can get those interviews, he will tell you himself. Yeah. He still has questions himself.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And he would say, keep asking questions, keep asking hard questions, and don't think that you have arrived. Right. I think that's what he would say. And he pretty much said that in the interview from 2014. And also... I think he would tell me personally because even though Concordia started me down that path, Dust, you don't know me that well. I can be a very critical spirit. And I know that being a musician, being a German, being a Missouri Synod Lutheran, (laughs) we place a very high premium on being right. Yep. And I have, I was regaling my own kids uh, recently with the stories of what a critical person I was. Hmm. Dust, I sat in a class and I, lambasted a fellow student who misinterpreted Auden's poem, uh, the the citizen, the the unknown citizen who Mm -hmm. dies at the end and nobody knows his name and Mm -hmm. was he happy. And she totally missed that. And poor Sid Johnson said nothing because I just went into a rant. I can't believe I did that now. It's just one example of how Concordia started me down the path Mm -hmm. of not being so critical but I certainly had not yet arrived in 1980. <laughs> I once threw up my hands in front of Dwayne Brandt. I was talking to him. I threw up my hands and I just walked away from him because I was just, I was, and I thought, how dare a student do that to mm-hmm. Dwayne Brandt? Oh my gosh, I have many stories of how I could be extremely critical. And Concordia started me down a path of embodied theology that it's not only not trusting your own brain and your own understanding, but it's all of who you are. And we can start talking about vocation later, which didn't mean anything until I came back Mm -hmm. to teach. But these were professors. Think about them. They embodied the theology they were teaching to us. So they laughed and they came to our variety shows and they popped their lunch trays down in the middle of the cafeteria on our tables and visited with us and told us about stealing their kids Halloween candy. They were embodied as real human beings. And I think it was Dr. Sheck and all of them together. Does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, I think so. You know, and part of it is because, like I said, I I experienced Concordia as well with many of these same professors just a little further down the road, and they hadn't changed for me. What you're describing in your experience was very similar to mine, and that is uh, they weren't just academics. You could disagree with a professor about something, you know, and some some checklist or in some piece of theology, but as humans, um, the names that you were naming, um, had tremendous influence because they were human because they made space in their lives to be human with students as every year went by. I don't know how they did it. That's pretty, pretty phenomenal, but certainly had influence on, in me.
1: There is something that I teach and I learned it along the way. There are three things that will turn an enemy into a friend and also bring someone into community with you hmm. and turn an acquaintance into part of your community. Three things, shared food, shared laughter and shared suffering. And they, they had all those three with us. Hmm. The suffering was not, I don't think as intense as right now, but we students, were cohesive and in community because we shared the suffering of working really hard at Concordia, the shared laughter, the shared food, and the teachers themselves did the same with us. Mm. And I could tell you so many stories about food and (laughs) laughter, but those three things, they shared their whole lives. Uh, We students babysat their kids. You had to live around Concordia back then if you were the faculty. And so uh, they all were about the same age. They were all in their 30s and 40s, and they would always grab a student on Friday night if they needed a babysitter, we'd go babysit their
0: kids. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I can't help it. Tell me another story.
1: Tell you another <laughs> story. Okay, yeah, spoil the whole story. Yeah. Um, First of all, I just sent you a picture, and I would be glad to send it to anybody. 40 years after I graduated, I'm walking on Merrillhurst campus, And it was after I had taped the music for Easter, and I needed to walk someplace. And Hans lives with Krista at uh, Mary's Woods. And I'm there often. I've never seen him out walking around. But I'm walking around, and here comes this man. It looks just like Hans Spotify, and there he is. (laughs) There he is. I run into him, and I've got my mask on, face mask on, and he immediately recognized Linda Simpson. And so he walked with me. (laughs) Down, and I took that picture of him. So I sent off an email to all of my students: Will you come walk with me in 40 years? <laughs> <laughs> but here comes the Hans old story. Uh, I had Old Testament with him, and again, critical person that I am and also inquiring because I really wanted to know, we were in the book of Numbers mm-hmm. and we had just read the story about the man who picks up sticks and God um, has him executed. He's stoned yeah. because he picked up sticks on the Sabbath day. And that's in like Numbers, I don't know, eleven, fifteen, 15, whatever it is. And then just a few chapters later, we have the entire um, family of Israel, all of the Israelites Sacrificing to other gods, worshiping idols, and then we have the need for raising the golden, uh, the bronze snake, Mm -hmm. because the whole Israelite nation is all abandoning God. And my question was God is not consistent, is he? How, <laughs> how can we say that god is consistent look at it, it's only been four chapters four chapters later and he went from smiting one guy guy from picking up for picking up sticks and now what happened when the first person sacrificed to an idol why didn't he why didn't he smite him why didn't he come back when they first you know were worshiping some other god why didn't he send a bolt down and do that how can he be so inconsistent and it's yeah. a short period of time. And here was his answer. Again, this is not a direct quote, but it was his essence. And this is it. Linda, look for a deeper consistency beyond the surface. Mm. Look for a deeper consistency beyond the apparent contradictions. And he's the one who awakened me to paradox and ambiguity and going deeper and looking beyond the surface, because I had a stage two or a stage three level of faith, and I probably left Concordia, a good tribe member, stage three, but he set, he sowed the seeds for looking deeper and not just having a single story of how god is how the bible was written and how it should be in chronological order and we have to have all the understanding that is possible about god would smite this guy but not the entire nation when they first started to go astray and to just uh listen and let go of the anxiety and keep asking the questions and just keep looking for the deeper consistency of god's character that is woven through the history.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. It, as I was listening to you tell that story, um, I've got a few of my own from these professors, um, but it, it just strikes me that we're coming out of a whole era where um, lots of reasons for it, but we just tend to think of faith and of relationship with God and everything Sort of in this industrial or, or mechanistic sort of way where, you know, everything's like a toggle switch, right? It's like, you know, I either flip it this, you know, it flips up or it flips down. It's on or it's off. And um, what we see in scripture all the way from the, from Genesis 1 all the way to the very end of Revelation is that God doesn't work with toggle switches, right? And the good teachers in our lives help us to see who God is as a person and not as some sort of machine that sort of just acts mechanistically in some way.
1: Thank you. Yes. The, uh, and the freedom to question, mm-hmm. to keep asking hard questions uh, Ford David Ford has a quote and I didn't write it down, but it is, um, we are formed more through the questions that we ask than through particular answers. And any worthwhile answer will provoke new questions. And I think that was a great gift that they gave us. We were allowed to ask hard questions. And Hans Spaltholz did not put me down, even though I was really pointed in class or check or anybody else. And you're right, it wasn't a toggle switch of here, let's tell you all the right stuff that you have to know, and now you're ready to go out into the world. It was this being formed and transformed and seen as a process that was going to continue our whole lives long. We're I not
0: think, just, I we're not just getting our- you ready for uh to take the test at the end of the week yeah. or the end of the semester. Yeah. There's more going on here. Yeah. Absolutely. So I'm hearing you're describing someone who has gone through a pretty serious process of change from that student, you know, back then to the instructor, the theological doctor that you are now. Um, What's changed? I mean, and and I recognize it's a big question. Okay. And you get, you get to pick, but really what's, what's changed in this process for you because of what was sown in your life back then?
1: Living living the paradoxes and living the ambiguities. One of the books that helped me the most was when I was first starting out teaching online, 2004, and I had students who were, uh, I had one, I had one, who was not (laughs) happy about having a woman teach him, and uh, he was very resistant all the way through, and Chris Reinke said, Linda, you need to read James Fowler, Stages of Faith, Hmm. and I soaked that up and I realized, oh my gosh, I myself am not that far along in the stages of faith. If there's six and Jesus gets to stage six and very (laughs) few others even get close to stage six, I am way down here. What happened was you can't get to the later stages of faith except through trauma. You have to have a crisis of faith. If it happens to you once, there may be a conversion experience. You can always resist and just stay at whatever level of faith you are. But if you go on to, if you get pulled, drawn into a new stage of faith, it takes um, a a true crisis uh, for the later stages, four, five, and six. And if God especially loves you, I think he allows many crises in your life. And I think that when I was younger, I would think, why doesn't my family get a break? Why, Why can't I be normal? Why don't I get a break? Why am I making bad choices, but I can't see it until years down the road? Why am I shooting myself in the foot? Why is my critical spirit destroying so many relationships? Mm. Yeah, There's so much that I learned, and I'm going to go right back to a Martin Luther quote, because we can't get out of a Lutheran podcast. And this has become something that means so much to me that wouldn't have meant anything 20, 30 years ago. And this is it. Not a word of the Bible is extra crucem. Mm-hmm. Everything points to the cross of Christ, and this quote is one that I I look at often. Learning to live in the spirit in the church is not only about being theologically right and discerning appropriate doctrinal innovation. It is also about the spirit in which controversy is carried on and about reflecting in one's exercise or acceptance of authority a vulnerability that corresponds to the centrality of the cross of Christ. I didn't do that with Christy when Mm she gave her poem in speech class and even this last year can i tell you another story this just this last semester i had a student who was an atheist he was in an elective so it's like if if it's an elective give me a break you should have signed (laughs) up because you wanted to be here but no he he needed the theology credit okay not going to tell you who it is Hmm. he was atheist he was resistant he didn't read the materials he didn't participate he rarely showed up he was flunking
0: Hmm. and it
1: got down to the wire and he finally looked on blackboard and saw that he wasn't even anywhere near 50% and so he came to me and i had been so irritated with him the whole semester and i i don't know if the students saw or noticed but inside i was just like arr, arr, don't like you who do you think you are yeah. and he said okay doctor berecki he called me doctor berecki yeah. <laughs> so i need to pass what do i do to pass, so I gave him David F. Ford's Christian Wisdom book, which is an extremely academic, highly theological treatise. It's, I don't know, 300 pages. It changed no my life. I said, Here. "I want you to read this book. You have two weeks to read this book." And I didn't think he would do it because he was pretty obstinate. But he did, he went home he read the whole book and he put post-it notes and we met for an hour. Mm -hmm. And I looked at all these, he put post-it notes everywhere with all of his questions. Well, how can God do this and how can God do that? It was all about the Odyssey. It's about Job and Mm -hmm. uh, all the great questions of life. And he read it and all of a sudden, uh, in the course of just the last two weeks of school, I started to see him through the eyes of the cross of Christ. Mm I started seeing him through the eyes of Christ, and not just as an obstinate student, that I was gonna win because I had the power, and he didn't, but it was learning to exercise authority with a vulnerability that corresponds to the centrality of the cross of Christ. Yeah. And I think that that's what I've learned along the way, is to try to see students through the eyes of Jesus, mm-hmm. and not just see them as blank slates that I'm supposed to write on, nor as activists that I need to bend their will to mine, But just to look at them as though they are dearly loved and they have ultimate value by Jesus, who was willing to drag a cross through the streets out of love. And whether they know his name or not, Christ has gone before. He's in the classroom. I don't have to bring Christ into the classroom. Just learning that, Hmm. that I can just show up and and just point to Christ in myriad, myriad, in various
0: ways. Linda, we're but on, that's the biggest change. We're on video conference, and so people can't see what I'm seeing, which is I get <laughs> looking at you in the face, even though we're you know 20 miles away from one another, what whatever. And you, you're, you experienced a tide, it's being a tidal wave, it's a tidal wave of emotion as you told that story. I could see it in your face. So just what's connect the emotion to when, where is that coming from for you? And you're telling us some of it, but if you're willing to tell us a little bit more, where is it coming from? Why this student? What's the deal?
1: I would say that our number one job here on earth is to be healed and that uh, when we go to communion, we get more than forgiveness of sins. We totally get forgiveness of sins, but I grew up thinking that going to communion was about getting uh, uh, sins were forgiven. And I couldn't understand why we had to keep uh, confessing all the sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended thee every week. Hmm. I didn't get that, and it, it marked me. And so I just thought, well, okay, so I have to keep confessing these. And the idea that there's actually healing to be had, that's, that's you knew me 10 years ago. It's been in the last 10 years that I think mm-hmm. the most healing has occurred. its It started at Concordia, I went through a doctoral program. I wasn't there to climb a ladder of success. I had zero hope. There were still no women teaching at Concordia in 2006 when I got my doctoral degree. I went there because I was still looking for the right church. Give me the right truth. I'm sick and tired of this synod. I'm tired of this denomination. Um, Show me a better one. When was there the time when they all had their ducks in the row, in the right row? And what I learned was, after getting to the very last class on sacramental life, I learned that it's all true. It's all true. Everything we were taught in confirmation, it's all true, only it's deeper and more beautiful than I ever understood because baptism is all about healing and communion is all about reconciliation and healing, spiritual and emotional and all of that. And it's like, I can't leave the Missouri Senate. I have to go back and tell my family, my tribe, I have to tell them it's all true. <laughs> Only it's it's not as superficial mm. as I always thought. It's not just a theological treatise, that there is healing to be had look through it. it
0: look beneath the it, surface. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. And it's been hard. <clears throat> and you've seen me these last ten years. Mm-hmm. It's not it wasn't this great awakening and now all my life is great. There are some really rocky places along the way.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Um,
1: Yeah. Does that answer your question? And now I don't even remember what the question was that you asked.
0: (laughs) Yeah, just I I asked you to dig, share a little bit more if you're willing about, you know, usually our emotions are flags of of a deeper, deeper mode within us, a connection maybe um, between the different parts of us that are made in Jesus image, you know, heart, soul, mind and strength is how he calls it. But I, I think of it. I think of the emotions as sort of like the tip of the iceberg a lot of times that will often let us see that there's a connection, a golden thread that runs down through all the way down into other parts of us. And so thank you. We're hearing some of that from you. Um, But that's how we're made in the image of God with depth.
1: I would say that the golden thread is vocation, which Mm -hmm. is a word I didn't know when I graduated from Concordia, but it was there. It was just not on the, on the surface to be mm. seen. And I believe with all my heart that the Lutheran doctrine of vocation is one of the greatest doctrines in this whole world. But, um it has taken me teaching it now since 2012, eight years teaching the doctrine of vocation, <laughs> because the, the implications are not, there's so much, and maybe we should sa- save that for the next time we talk, but the golden thread of being called, you have infinite worth and God just wants us to be healed. And our job is not to be successful and productive. Yeah. And as women, we're not called to be beautiful as well as successful and productive. Mm. We're just called to be reconciled and healed. And that—that that is all part of vocation, that you have infinite value, not because of what you accomplish, not because of what you do, but simply because of who you are and the gifts and talents that God gave you, I believe that with my whole heart. I try to teach that. Yeah. At um, at Concordia. And, in these last two days.
0: <laughs> and and we're blessed if we get just a moment every, here and there, right? It's like tending a garden where you you're blessed if you get a moment when the rain falls just right and and things happen just right. But in the meantime, you sort of labor at it and just do what you need to do. That um. We're coming to the end of this episode, um but sure. we're we're planning on at least one more um, podcast together, um digging a little bit more into your experience with students and their perspective, the perspective of millennial um, generation and generation Z, who are the ones who are in university now but let's let's sort of bring our time in this episode to a close and by thinking just once more about that tidal wave that you described um and the tidal wave specifically the picture I have in my mind is, is of the, the change that, um, boomers and Xers have had to go through, um, as the world has changed. Um, and, and what, you know, the person that's left on the other side of it, um, if you're thinking about yourself, um, what did you, what did you gain from the, the, being cast on the shore by this tidal wave, I guess is the, the best way that I could put this question.
1: That it was a privilege to be there at the end. mm mm-hmm. um, I would not have traded this last semester of getting to teach on campus for anything. It was horrible. Yeah. <laughs> there was a paradox for you. Mm-hmm. Things started to disappear. All of the tables were set up the rest of the time we were together for the transfer colleges that was never out of our thoughts um but there was a privilege in being there and these students i had already recognized were extraordinary students and i even asked paul why why did i get the best class ever (laughs) Uh, really some very fine classes on the very one very last semester and he said oh it's a gift from God you know he gave he gave a theologically correct answer and I don't know the answer to that what was I left on the other you know it's funny because I don't see myself on the sh- I don't see myself on the shore yet I still mm. see myself we've got okay. two days left yep. I still still see myself on the Titanic I still want to send emails to some of these students who've been struggling I still want to yeah. do that I'm still there I'm not yet on the shore mm but i will go back to that what a privilege it was to be there uh for the blossoming time of the four-year degree program and for the hospice time Mm -hmm. of the baccalaureate program that was a huge privilege and i'm so grateful that i just got to be there
0: yeah you and me both um I'm grateful I got to be a student and then later on got to work with students um, as a faculty, part-time faculty person and interim director for um, campus ministry. And I have great memories from that time. It's painful. And I think one of the things that I I referenced already is um, giving voice to a little bit of lament, giving voice to um, loss. And that's an, an okay thing. In fact, that's part of what helps us live on in a good way, is being able to do that. And I appreciate you doing that with me during this time. Um, and I'm hoping that those that listen to this that are, have been connected with Concordia University in the past, are students or faculty or parents of students or whoever, um, would be able to capture that same um, picture what did you say you said the way you put it was so cool you said something about lament is connected to hope or to um having a sense of hope
1: to lament is to hope psalm 88 even when there's no hope at all except he's still crying out that's Mm -hmm. the only hope there is no hope it's complete dark i'm in the pit i have no hope but the fact that the psalmist and this is Hans faldeholtz crashes and burns at Psalm 88, but that's not Psalm 150. That's not the end of the story. Yeah. To lament is to hope. The seeds of hope are in the crying out
0: itself. Mm-hmm.
1: And that's not the end of the story. There is more to the story.
0: Even while I'm crashing and burning. Amen to that.
1: In the dark pit.
0: Yeah. Uh, Linda, thank you. Dr. Barecki, thank you. Um, you're both to me, your teacher and a good friend. Um, so, we always close these episodes with a kind of a closing question um, for the listener, for the folks that are listening in on these podcasts. Uh, what do you have for us as we close out it's our It's different time?
1: than what I thought it was going to be. Do Ooh. you want to hear it?
0: Go for it. Let's hear it. <laughs>
1: okay. This is a passage that has marked my life the last ugh, since I started the doctoral program. I'm going to read it and then i'm going to ask you the question okay ephesians 1 17 to 19a i keep asking that the god of our lord jesus christ the glorious father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Here's the question. What are you being called to through this time? Concordia's closing quarantine the changing of this world so that you may know Christ better how are you getting to know Christ better
0: Hmm.
1: how is Christ being revealed what hope has been planted in your heart
0: Hmm.
1: and what power has been given to you to navigate this Hmm. but especially what is there that is a greater revelation so that you can know Christ better
0: Hmm. I have a friend who ends her emails with just a simple phrase, look up. And I love that. What you just shared made me, made me think of Jenny's little phrase at the end of her emails, look up and uh, you'd be surprised what you see when you do. Linda, thanks for the time. And I'm looking forward to at least one more conversation with you. Um, um, It'll be a little bit more focused on some of the things that your students taught you. And um, until that uh, episode gets launched, uh, dear listener, thanks again. We'll catch you around the next bend in the river. This is the Now Leading Podcast.
1: You just listened to the Now Leading Podcast, hosted by the Northwest District LCMS. Leadership conversations from a Lutheran point of view. For Christian leaders of all kinds take a moment after this podcast and with everything you've just heard in mind consider at least one action you will take then go and make it happen